people and welcome. I'm Ann Gordon. Yardane and I, Osband and I are here talking Talmud. Today's daf, Brachot Zion. So I was so excited, Ann, to get to this daf um, because I want to talk about a brisa that appears here. It may be okay. very familiar to people as a very famous Avram Fried song uh, called <laughs> Tanya. <laughs> And in fact, but it's an it's an oldie but a goodie song. In fact, I was at the Hass concert last year, maybe it was two years ago, where he performed. And in the middle of the concert, he said, oh, you can pick one of my older songs. And my family I was with, we were all shouting Tanya. There was a row in front of us of, I'm not that old, but let's say some younger participants in the concert <laughs> who like whip their head around because I don't think they ever heard the song before. Anyhow, so this is an oldie but goodie um, Abram Fried song. Um, I think it raises... And it's inter- older than that in the Gemara. Yeah, but it's a really old piece in the Gemara. I think this also is a good example of why we need to understand who we're talking about, because even I, as I was prepping this, got a little confused. Um, and uh, so whatever, I think there's some good things to stay, say here. So the Gemara here is in the middle on Dab of, of talking about whether or not Hashem, whether or not God davens, whether or not God prays. Um, which in itself is a very, very interesting concept. And I think one of the things we see in these pages of uh, Brachot is there's a lot of anthropomorphism. There's a lot of, if we do one thing, like we pray, does God also pray, right? Um, uh, And describing God in terms of many of these activities. So the Gemara goes through and is talking about uh, what is it that God prays every day? And then it shares a beautiful brysa. And the Bryce is about a Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha. Now, when you read this, it can be a little bit confusing because in fact, there are two Rabbi Yishmael ben Elishas. So the, I don't want to say the more famous one, but sort of the one that we, people might be more familiar with is the one who we tend to generally just call Rabbi Yishmael. And he's a third generation Tana. Uh, he sort of spars, not spars, but he has, uh, his counterpart tends to be a little bit of Rabbi Akiva. Uh, because Rabbi Yishmael, again, this is not the one of our Brisa, but I do think knowing a little bit about him is important to understand it, the Brisa is about his grandfather. They just both happen to have the same name, the same way we see we have all those Rabban Gamliels and then Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliels. So this family's name was, you know, uh, Yishmael and Elisha seems to be the trade-off of how they were named. So the grandson of uh, Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha of our Brisa, who's also Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha, He's the author of the Yud Gimel Midot. He developed a way of how do we understand Psukim in order to translate them into Halakha. And one of his guiding principles was that the Torah is written in the language of man. Why is that important? And I'm bringing this up later because we'll talk about this later. Because he, unlike Rabbi Akiva, felt you couldn't darshan out or hold your hat on like every single little word or repetition in the Torah because he said, it's the way that people talk. That's the way the Torah is written. So we often tend to repeat ourselves, as many of you now may be familiar from this podcast. That maybe repeat <laughs> myself sometimes. Okay. So this is, so that's his grandson, is the author of the Yud Gimel Mitot. That grandson is generally, that Rabbi Yishmael is often referred to as the Baal Habreita. And also, uh, but also wrote a lot of Agadata. So even though he's associated with the Yud Gimel Mitot and how we get Halakha from Sukim. A lot of Agadata and Midrash is actually attributed to his grandson. So when we look at this Midrash, this Brisa, which kind of is Midrashic sounding, uh, in uh, Brachos of the grandfather, 
I think we'll, we'll see some elements of Rabbi Ishmael, the grandson, through these actings of his grandfather. So this family, they were Kohanim, and Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha the first. He was a um, he was a Kohen Gadol. Okay, um, he's considered to be one of the um, ten um, martyrs, ten of the Asura Haruge Malchus, right? Which is a famous poem that we read on Yom Kippur. We also there's a version of it that we read on um, Tisha B'av. He's also the father of on Tisha B'av, There's another keynote. Uh, you know, that we, the, one of the keynotes talks about, and uh, forgive me, I forget if it's actually in the one about the Asar Haruge Machos, but I think it's actually in a different one about his children being kidnapped as slaves to Rome, and they're put into a room together to make, you know, slave babies together. Um, but when they realize that they're siblings, you know, they obviously decide uh, that they're, you know, not going to act upon that together. And then they're, they're killed at the end. And it's, it's a Kina that describes how terrible, you know, that obviously these two Jewish children of a Kohen Gadol, how they were treated during the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. So he's a contemporary of the first Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, who also was one of the, uh, you know, 10 martyrs. Um, so this is the Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha. Uh, this is the Kohen Gadol that we're talking about here. And so the Brisa describes the following encounter that he has. Tanya, okay? Again, how the Avram Freed starts songs, right? Tanya is always a word to say that we're talking about a Brisa. I'm a Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha. So Rabbi Yishmael ben Elisha says the following. Pamachat, one time, nichnasi lahaktir lifanim vilifanim. One time, Anyum Kippur, okay? He enters the innermost part of the Beit HaMikdash. The Ra'iti Atriel, uh, and he sees Hashem. Okay, he sees God during this encounter. God is sitting on top of a high and exalted throne. And God says the following to him, Yishmael b'ni, Yishmael my son, Baracheni, bless me. And I answered him, right, may it be your will, right, that your Mida uh, Abrahamim, your mercy should overcome your anger. V'yigalu Rachamecha al Midotecha, and that uh, of all your attributes, of all your Midot, the one that should prevail, the one that should come out the most, should be the one of mercy. You should act towards your children with the attribute of mercy. And that you should always sort of give them the benefit of the doubt, basically, right? Like, don't treat them according to the, the strictness of, of the dean, but always, you know, sort of uh, give them the, the ideas here is to basically treat them with rachamim, right? We always have these two competing midot of dean and rachamim. And the point of this prayer is to say that we want God, Yishmael blesses God, that he will treat his people, right? Treat the Jewish people with the attribute of, of, of rachamim, of mercy. And how does God respond? The ni'nadli b'rosho, right? What does he see that God sort of nods his nods uh, his head? Basically, I think it's a sign of agreement. The kamash malan shehotehe birkat hadyot kalabe'inecha. And what do we learn from this, okay? Is that nobody should take the blessing of an ordinary person lightly. Meaning what? That if God is asks for and accepts man's blessing, what does that mean? That when a man is blessed by another man, when a person is blessed by another person, 
don't take that lightly, right? Because how could it be that God would accept the blessing or the prayer of an ordinary man? So if God could even accept that, then we as human beings, when we interact with each other, okay, we should be able to express the blessing of another person, even if that person doesn't seem to be a great person or a, per a, a person who is very important. I think there's so much to unpack with this price, and I'm not even going to do it justice in the few minutes that we have. So first of all, I'm fascinated by the fact that the grandfather of the person who says that the Torah is written in the language of man, he he's asked to bless God. And this makes sense. I mean, the audacity of thinking that God would ask to be blessed by man. But if this is the family tradition that somehow the language of man is the language of Torah, it makes sense almost in a certain way that God can take that a person, excuse me, can take that same language and that person could somehow have the ability within the language that God gave us, which is the language of the Torah, to also be able to put that back on God and bless God. Okay, so that's one piece. And I think another question that arises of that, besides the idea that God, and maybe this is actually the first question, is why does God need our blessing, right? What, what does this mean that God would need our blessing? I, I think there's a lot to talk about here. You probably could write a PhD just about this price itself. Um, but I think this is saying something about the relationship between uh, us and God, right? That somehow we almost have to want what type of relationship we want with God. And maybe that's what the act of prayer is. It's, it's the articulating of what our hopes and, uh, and what our dreams are. So here it's the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, on Yom Kippur, the holiest of days, articulating what it is that we all feel on that day, that we hope that God will deal with us with the Mida, with the attribute of mercy. And then I want to get to the third piece of this brisa, which I think is, what's the conclusion, <laughs> right? The brisa isn't, the, the Gemara's conclusion about this brisa isn't that, oh, we learned that we can pray, we can bless God, or that God seeks our prayers, right? It's rather that you don't know whose blessing is important, right? And it sort of seems to be like a conclusion that it, it's not necessarily what I would have gotten out of this story. But the idea that even the simplest of people, even uh, someone who maybe doesn't seem important to you, their blessing could actually have a great impact on you and could be actually a blessing that could come true or one that you should actually pay attention to. So I guess I sort of have three questions on this brisa, right? The idea that God seeks our blessing, the idea that man could even bless God. And again, I think understanding who Rabbi Yishmael is, who his grandson later becomes, the idea of Torah being in the language of humans gives some little insight into that. And the third piece, which is the conclusion that they come to of sort of paying attention to that even somebody who doesn't seem great to you, their blessing uh, can, you know, don't treat it so lightly that anybody who prays for you or gives you a blessing uh, actually should be treated uh, very importantly. I suppose it's not surprising, Yardina, that again, I thought to raise a comparable point from the same duff about the need of God's, of God to pray. What I find interesting here is the discussion of God's anger. You spoke of drawing near to God. I want to pay attention to when people need to keep their distance. The Gemara has several comments about God's anger, which lasts, you know, for a moment. For a moment can be rega. I'm, I'm sorry, it says God's angry for a moment, that moment being the word rega. And the Gemara 
discusses how, how long is is that moment really one option is the amount of time it takes to say the word rega the other is a infinitesimal amount of one hour is one moment and the Gemara spells out what that infinitesimal infinitesimal amount is I'm going to interrupt myself here just for a side observation. It's a very Christian thing, I think, for example, to think of God as an angry God, that the God of the Christian Bible is loving and merciful, and the God of what they call the Old Testament, what we call Tanakh, is vengeful and angry. Given all the anthropomorphism that Masach Brachot has handed us, the depiction in human terms isn't surprising or disturbing, but I truly, truly never related to Hashem in the Torah, in the Chumash, as angry or vengeful nor in the Navi or the rest of Tanakh, if B'nai Israel do wrong, or Moshe Rabbeinu maybe, then God punishes. There are consequences. But there are so many instances of rachamim as well, of mercy. Anyway, I've never really understood that characterization. But the Gemara here does talk about God being angry. Ka'as, the word Hebrew word for anger here in the Gemara, appears on the daf five or six times. It's the third time, by my count, that captured my interest here. Va'amar Rabbi Yochanan Mishum Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yochanan said from, in the name of Rabbi Yossi, From where do we know not to try to placate a person when he's in the throes of his anger? Um, sorry. God, so I'm going to give you the context in a moment. God says to Moshe, Hamtainli, so what happens? We have here, let me give you the context and then I'll give you the words. It takes place right after Chita Egel, that sin of the golden calf, where Moshe asked Hashem to return B'nai Israel to their state of closeness with God prior to the distancing act of making a golden calf to worship, or perhaps for use as an intermediary, depending on whom you ask. So that's the verse. And God's answer? Just hang on. Let me regain my equilibrium. I am too angry to be nice right now. Right? I will get back to you. It's the kind of thing that parents say. Sometimes coworkers or close friends. There's a time to stay away. What's interesting to me is this anthropomorphism. Namely, God being angry. Well, we've already said that that's a given, or to be expected anyway. But here, it's not presented as God having human attributes so we could relate to him, for example, though that is, of course, what it is. But it's more than that here. It's that human beings should model themselves on God, how he comports himself in the Chumash, meaning God waits. God tells Moshe, you wait here. I will get back to you. I'm going to let the anger abate. And so, too, as according to Chazal, this is how people know not to try to placate somebody when they're in the throes of anger. Imitatio Dei, indeed. There's a lot more to say about drawing near and the cautious distance. Some teasers from the da for you to think about. Moshe and the burning bush, where he first draws near and then keeps his distance. And the one who is wicked, how is wickedness manifest as distance from the divine? Which comes first? Do people become wicked and then go do wicked? Do people become wicked by and do wicked things because they are far from God? Or have they distanced themselves from God with their wicked activity? That's our DAF discussion for the day. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Apple, 
I think iTunes. I know there's an issue with Google. We're working on it. And you can subscribe via our WhatsApp group. Come find us. Leave us a ranking. Give us a review. Help more people discover us. Share our podcast. Thank you so much. And until tomorrow, go and learn.